So, welcome back. My name is Falk Hutman, and today I would like to present a podcast to you um, that covers a bigger topic, and I've looked at this topic for a long time myself, so um, the podcast will be a bit longer. It's titled Bystanding by Design, Seabirds as Indicators of a Failed Scientific Conservation Management and their institutions, employees, and NGOs worldwide. Seabirds are indicators of the ocean and the ecosystem, and that is a widely accepted fact. It's widely published, and it's a really big deal, and it's basically accepted without dispute by anybody who seriously look at it. Um, this very clear claim comes out of the seabird publications. These are publications dealing with seabirds, and it has been widely heralded by everybody who um, investigate seabirds and who publishes and who manages them for more than over 80 years. You can look in the work from um, Murphy and Wayne Edwards, Edwards, Ashmole, and then later by David Cairns and some very good publications uh, repeated by John Pyatt and colleagues um, and so on. So scientists know that. And they are really proud of that fact that seabirds are these indicators of the ecosystem and of the ocean, and um, that's what they represent. It's clear that seabirds are indicators of prey, and usually that means fish or zooplankton or squid. They are also indicators for predation and predators. You can also talk about contaminants such as oil or mercury and so on. Um, or lead. You can look into human pressure and certainly last but not least climate change. I will cover those topics later. Um, for now, I will probably um, continue first with fish because it has received most of the attention and that's such a wonderful example. So when you look at fish and at the fisheries uh, in the world, you can find many population crashes to the degree that the fisheries is, went entirely bankrupt and that they are out of fish, literally some of the fish species became extinct. Many examples, I will show you a few because seabirds have been um, studied in these areas. And uh, the surprising fact there is that while people have studied seabirds, often they have not made the argument that there's overfishing going on or they were too shy to promote it or they didn't want to deal with policy. So they were bystanding this subject. So I'll show you these examples first, and i come back to that in a minute. So, for instance, a very classic example of, of mismanaged fish stocks is the cod crisis. The cod crisis is um, based on the fish in the Atlantic, the cod, um, in the, on the Grand Banks mostly. Newfoundland occurs otherwise other places too, but the Newfoundland cod crisis is very famous. It's in eastern Canada, and the seabirds there, and the seabird research that's there, really haven't stopped the crisis. They have hardly made any policy claims, and if they made a few, which is very little, by the way, um, then the policy people for fisheries have not really taken them serious. And um, in other words, seabirds have indicated cod problems, but um, the, the departments and the ministries who were involved, including international fishing fleets, didn't care. So it was a highly inefficient concept, and that became almost of world fame how strong this cod crisis was. 
cod has been harvested for over 600 years, more or less sustainable perhaps. But um, in the last um, 50 years probably, um, it came to a massive crisis to the degree that the cod fisheries went um, to the to almost to an halt. Um, you can go away from Canada on the east coast and can move into the US quickly. Uh, Gulf of Maine also had similar species, including cod, um, and it's a similar pattern there. Um, seabirds were not used for anything there. If you move to the adjacent um, uh, Canadian coast, um, Bay of Fundy as an example, um, there are time series data that have been collected for a long time, um, over 20 years on, on birds like terns, razorbills, puffins, um, and so on. And um, the interesting thing there is, like with many of the indicator questions, is that the seabirds often are catching the first year uh, or the, the, the first generation of the prey, meaning the young prey, uh, which later turns into a harvestable, harvestable uh, fish. So basically, you can use uh, seabirds as an early indicator for fish stock status. However, um, this work also has really not resulted into avoiding the crisis that currently is ongoing in the Bay of Fundy and has been there for a yeah, long time. So that's obviously a very interesting question, why is it all is? The, the seabird researchers, they are observing these problems, but um, not much is happening. They're literally bystanding a major crisis there. Um, so if you move into the US again, uh, to the Pacific in this case, um, for instance, a very classic crash has happened in the Pollock fishery, called the donut, donut hole fishery and related fisheries, but Pollock is a big one on the Alaskan side as well as on the Russian side, massive collapse, um, nothing has happened. Um, for, for for betterment. This um, sardine has crashed, the crab fisheries in Alaska has crashed, and um, seabirds should reflect this, but um, you find almost nothing that um, really has halted the crisis. Um, you should know that the Pollock really is in the center of the Aleutian Islands, or a lot of the fisheries there, and that is really one of the world headquarters of seabirds, and people have studied seabirds on the Aleutians. Um, anyway, no policy improvement came from there. Halibut fisheries in Alaska is another one that's currently on the verge of um, uh, yeah, massive decline, certainly. And um, king salmon is the one that uh, is not in a good shape whatsoever. There are herring stocks in Alaska that crashed already early on. Uh, same is true for British Columbia in the south uh, in coastal Canada. And then the European Union, when you move into this area, uh, had many of the failures um, and as a matter of fact, certainly for the herring. And um, when you uh, look into the indicator species in Norway, in Iceland for these herring crashes or in some of the Scottish waters, um, for instance, there's a puffin, right? The Atlantic puffin that should have indicated it and, and some other species. And um, people just haven't made the conclusion. So despite the EU having these fisheries laws or in the US, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, nothing really happens. You can make other very uh, famous cases like the Cal in California. California is very peculiar because, for instance, they had a crash of the abalone, they had a crash of the sand bass, they had a crash of the sardine, and others. Um, while California itself uh, needs to be seen as the top 10, among the top 10 of the largest economy units anywhere in the world. So there's a super economy, they certainly have an academy of science right there, um, and nothing is really truly done. You can move away from these national examples and go more global. Uh, for instance, the sharks, right? I mean, sharks are overfished in the moment. Um, big crashes have been reported there worldwide. 
a seabird should reflect it one way or another, um, but nothing is done about it. Tuna is another one in the Atlantic and the Pacific, many tropical waters. Um, and what is really uh, done about it? Uh, with the case of tuna, it's actually very peculiar because there are cases um, where um, American scientists have been involved. They have actually documented tuna uh, seabird interactions. It's a very old topic, by the way, in seabird research, but um, nothing has really truly been done about it. Um, you go to Namibia, which is uh, has a very cold current, rich of fish, um, and uh, some population have crashed there. There's European Union, other nations get involved, including South Africa, perhaps, um, but um, very little documentation and very little um, effort and policy has been uh, done to stop the overfishing. If you move to Chile or, the per or Peru uh, in South Latin America, South America, there are other currents like the Humboldt currents, and you look at anchovy and other fish species that are really in trouble, and many seabirds are there, many species, um, but um, that relationship hasn't been done. You can move into other areas like Antarctica, really famous for that one, uh, Patagonia toothfish. Okay, it's a it's a fish that probably is on a dramatic decline. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is a supposed to be a management of some sort involved with Camilla. Um, it's a, um, a science body that is actually claiming itself is doing very advanced, progressive, sustainable harvest methodology, except that um, seabirds and Patagonian toothfish and Camilla probably have never all talked to each other. Um, but as a result, is there's a complete disconnect and this concept of seabirds as indicators failed again. Um, if you really keep on going that route, you will find that probably 80% of all the commercial fish stocks, might be more, in the world are overfished. They're not in a good shape, even if they're rebuilt um, or people trying to rebuild them. Um, they are not what they were in earlier times uh, without humans messing around in the oceans and playing a what kind of Wild West game there, a full exploitation. And the seabirds as indicators, like why are seabirds not more used as indicators and uh, what do the scientists do and so on? That obviously is the question. Um, how many examples are there truly there where seabirds are used to predict the fish stock and adjust the harvest? And then there will be accordingly regulations. You can just look, you don't have to use seabirds. You can use other indicators of the ocean. They will tell you probably a very similar story. And the ocean policy just hasn't been done. There's very, very little example where it actually truly has worked where seabirds as indicators of the of the ecosystem of fish stocks and so on really truly have been used. That's actually pretty embarrassing. Um, seabird researchers are watching it. Seabird researchers are watching it. Educators know about it. Um, but what do the um, agencies really do about it who employ those seabird researchers? They don't do much about it either. You can easily look at coral reefs. Right? I mean, coral reefs are currently on a massive decline. There are a lot of problems in coral reef decay, probably 50% worldwide are even affected. And you ask the question, hey, what, what have we really done better? And we haven't. It's It keeps going down. So why is nothing happening? Who is to blame? And why do we have so many bystanders that see all these things and, and don't express their concern or um, yeah, are not effective eventually? It's about being effective, right? Um, so clearly, a seabird is an indicator. Many seabird species are indicators for ocean acidification. And of course, the big 500-pound uh, gorilla in the room, climate change, carbon dioxide, methane. Seabirds do indicate those. They can. But what's done about it? Anything? So to understand this problem with a seabird biologist and their employees, 
or the, the employment situations, which includes agencies and um, also um, funding agencies and NGOs. Um, you have to um, look more also into the uh, resource a little bit, bit, bit deeper and into the trusted resource and into the oceanography. So let's quickly look at it. Um, what is an indicator in the first place? And how is that type of indication research really done? Let's face it, it's really a correlational science. What often happens is that people take a metric from a seabird. This is pretty indirect, pretty undersampled of all the seabird populations in most cases. But let's say you have this seabird metric, like number of birds or reproductive success or number of chicks or uh, chick survival or um, a health metric, body weight or stable isotopes, whatever you use. There's something you can use. It's usually actually an indirect measure of, of seabird populations. And then you relate that to some sort of oceanography variable or to some sort of fish stock if you want. But this is also an indirect measure. So you basically do it one indirect measure and correlate it with another indirect measure, often over time, and you end up in these typical time series analysis where the seabird researchers really only have control over one variable, which is a seabird, which they have widely undersampled because there are so many of them in these colonies or wherever you, you sample them. And then um, they get a secondhand report from an oceanography or, or fisheries uh, data set and they try to relate that. Uh, in reality, though, it's, it's, a, it's clearly a mapping problem because seabirds reach out far. You don't know exactly where they always eat and feed. And as a matter of fact, it's a 3D problem, three-dimensional, because the prey, let's say you want to deal with fish, um, and some birds are uh, diving birds, of course, are seabirds, um, you end up with a three-dimensional problem and have to make a three-dimensional overlay, which is actually really difficult. Um, instead, we see these time series, often not more than 10 years, perhaps 20 years would be pretty long, um, but even that is, is obviously not so easy to do. Because when you look at the statistics, and that's what I'm trying to get at, is that um, many seabird researchers and these agencies, they're not expert in statistics. They really are not trained in it. You can hardly rely on them. And uh, it's because it's, it can be a pretty complex uh, situation to overlay uh, these data and uh, relate them. So um, what we have a lot is um, a lot of arm waving, a lot of storytelling, and the literature is full of these storytellings, um, anecdotal evidence, but um, there is no role model how it's to be done. There's no best professional practice how it's to be done. And when you know the literature about uh, statistics, you know there's a lot of dubious um, stuff going on with p-values, AIC, parsimony, and so on. Hopefully machine learning can do it better now. But nevertheless, there is a statistical issue and um, this claimed mechanistic links to understand the mechanism of these indicators often basically doesn't exist. So that is actually pretty dubious and pretty problematic. In addition, I myself, I've been very disappointed also with the lack of open access data. I mentioned that many times and I didn't get far, far with it. Uh, most agencies and seabird researchers and, and the NGOs certainly who are paid by usually by mm, uh, private money or industrial money don't want to do open access data. There's very little open access data on, let's say, mm, the correlation between a certain seabird or a seabird metric and um, the fish metric, let's say. Um, you will find some, but not much. And that's obviously a problem. Now, I'd like to show you why that is such a problem. So let me use um, a few examples here. Let's start with krill. You probably have heard about that krill is currently harvested. Krill obviously sits on the uh, bottom of the food chain. 
It's a zooplankton. There are different species of krill, but usually it relates to the Antarctic krill species, um, which is a very stunning food uh, item. It actually nowadays gets um, marketed as a super health food, although it's easy to show it isn't. But nevertheless, for humans, it's probably not so good to eat. I, I don't promote it. Um, but also people use it actually as dog food and for other animals. So it's a very interesting question. But the point is that krill harvest is pretty remote. It's one of the most expensive um, krill um, yeah, harvest items anywhere in the ocean because it's such a difficult fishery and you have to process the krill afterwards for, for consumption. Anyway, um, some seabirds eat krill and people have um, started to realize that some crashes in some penguins, which can be a complex subject, are related to krill. So there are, as a matter of fact, examples where krill harvest, as it is done by Norway and other countries as an investment project, uh, happen right in front of these penguin colonies. Now, what would you think when penguins and seabirds should be indicators of their food, which is not so surprise, so to be not, not so surprising? Um, what you would assume, obviously, is when you take the food away, is that the seabirds have a hard time to eat or that they can't raise chicks, or they have to fly harder to go somewhere else and fly fly further and die deeper, dive deeper. Um, that connection makes sense, except it's not super well studied, not well understood. But surprisingly, that when these krill harvests um, are done by, let's say, a Norwegian company, and then a research is done by the University of Tromsø, which doesn't work with open access data also, you probably will have some eyebrows raised there and wonder like how isn't that a little bit vested is that really an ethical type of study um so far many people have actually avoided the topic altogether and instead of harvest um, blaming the krill harvest or studying the krill harvest <clears throat> they actually study climate change instead which probably is somehow related but nevertheless krill harvest matters and then they are have been very surprised suddenly when they say, oh, there's a, a daily penguin colony, which seems to have a crash of, let's say, 30%. And then there's a chinstrap colony nearby. <clears throat> and um, whew, what's the reason for it? Well, um, the fact is that um, what I've seen in these places, um, it's just a correlation one to another. And I don't understand why there's not better, um, uh, more effort and more um a promotion of the subject and a stronger um, awareness that krill harvest, the bottom of the food chain, is probably not a healthy thing to do, considering that places like South Chatlet Island in the Southern Hemisphere has a decline of daily penguin by 70% or something, where there's a lot of fisheries going on and, and um, so on. So anyway, my point is that the krill harvest, as an example, should be really clear and easy, and um, it isn't, and the people who study it are probably um, not getting it done, and probably not really doing a full management anyways, because Antarctic car doesn't have a good um, management regime that's sustainable. Uh, so there are some interesting questions. Well, let's move away from Antarctica, where it's a big landscape. Let's move into something that, that's closer to home to many people, and that's Atlantic Puffin. You probably have heard about Atlantic Puffin. It's called the clown of the ocean in the Atlantic. Um, it's a, You probably have seen a photo of it. It's, it's very... Um, spectacular and very um, popular and is a celebrity basically it has been a widespread bird uh, a seabird um, it lives in, in scotland in norway in iceland where you find most of the population at least historically uh, in norway and um, canada and so on um, greenland um, now there's a massive decline 
these Atlantic puffins have been harvested. The harvest rates have been incredibly high and disturbance rates are so equally problematic. Uh, in, in some areas, up to 30% or so of all the puffins get, get, get disturbed, if not even killed. Um, so Iceland and Norway and Greenland are pretty dramatic in this subject. And um, Faroe Island, you may add as well. And um, by now, Norway has a, um, actually to, to, to admit that they have massive declining populations. Um, myself, I've studied, looked into Icelandic uh, puffins at sea, and I didn't find any, which was really surprising to me. And we have a publication on this um, where we showed the lack of Atlantic puffin. Um, what then people in subsequent studies found afterwards is that they say, oopsie, we really have a problem. And um, the, uh, some of the prey species have been changed and so on. Some of the chicks can't be fed anymore and so on. I mean, the whole issue with Atlantic puffin to me is a really stunning one because people like Michael Harris and others have studied that bird for a long, long, long time. And they really haven't made that case strongly. They're really shy about it, in my view. And um, certainly in the meantime, the Atlantic puffin literally has itself... Um, uh, yeah, has said goodbye <laughs> to many of the study areas and um, is massively on the move and if not even on the decline. So I don't know. Um, when you're a scientist and you're a bystander and you're seeing and documenting this, you even publish about it, you, you give talks and you get awards, lifetime awards, and then don't um, talk about the decline and the impact of these um, prey species for puffins, um, then I'm getting a little bit concerned. Um, I'd like to show you another one. That's almost equally um, famous. It goes in the other way around because that's the Northern Gannet and the Northern Gannet currently uh, shows an, uh, almost an explosion of numbers. So you would say, oh, that's good. I show you um, a bit of background about it. Of course, there's more research on the topic like with any of the examples I've given you, but I'm trying to give you here a, a rough trend here. Um, so with Northern Gannets, um, they probably were over harvested in many of the colonies where they lived, which happens to be in um, parts of Northern England and um, a little bit of Norway and then certainly in Canada. And um, so the, the animals really went down in their population trend in the 30s and then they rebounced and people didn't really take too much attention of it. But now you found, again, it's perhaps increasing to a rate of 15% per year or whatever the number is, but it's a very high number. Um, myself, I've been... Um, studying those birds, as I did some others that I mentioned in the list. But the Northern Gannet is very interesting because it showed up on an island called Helgoland, which is in the North Sea, the German island there. Uh, it's like a rock. Uh, and it started to nest there. And there was a big sensation when that happened in the late 1990s and then 2000s. And now the numbers are really high. And with the Gannets, again, as an indicator of the ocean, um, you would assume that um, people respond to this and know what it means that these numbers are exploding so much. But um, that's number one, that there is something funky going on. It's not declines, but increases. And that's probably because um, some food species of the Guinness are doing so well on the cost of others, um, which indicates a massive change in the ocean and a policy adjustment is never made. But the other thing with gannets, and that's even more scary, is this idea of nesting gannets really like to have plastic in their nest. So if you are concerned about plastic pollution and seabirds as indicators of the ocean, specifically indicators of plastic, the gannets really bring it home for a long time. And the microplastic and the plastic policy for ocean, certainly in Germany, certainly Helgoland, certainly uh, in the whole range, 
um, has never been adjusted, really. I mean, I, I don't have a good outlook for microplastics and plastics in the ocean for the next 20, 30 years, perhaps beyond that. Um, seabirds are indicators, yes, they show it, yes. People have studied it, yes. Helgoland is a bird watcher and bird research island. There are researchers there and, and many other places, including Canada, uh, Newfoundland and so on, um, Iceland also. But the point is that there's no action. And I find that super, super frustrating, if I may bring it up. Um, so I don't know. Um, I mean, if you're not addressing sustainability and the governance of the ocean in a good way, when you're in a public office, uh, I think then it becomes a wasted opportunity. It's a certain waste of money and funds because it's not that that we're talking about a three four years implication implementation until until um, changes are made we're talking about ongoing watching of these situations and massive changes in in the ocean system which is a, a global food security issue besides others uh, for or for over 50 years for over 80 years not even that and the science and the way how science is set up in the institutions, including um, the people who work in science and how they are awarded and how they promote themselves and get, give themselves these lifetime achievement awards and funding a lot, and also NGOs who get funded with other money, uh, it's not efficient. It's not working. Okay, We are currently on a, on, a, on a way down, and that is my concern. I think nobody will disagree with me here that we are... Um, have a good outlook for the ocean and that is super super frustrating the question here to me is are we witnessing a professional misconduct when it comes to best professional practice are we failing the new generation the new generation of the world the people that are supposed to enjoy the ocean the coastal zones the seabirds um where are we heading with this? And will we look back at some stage and say, hey, there are many seabird researchers who've looked at these birds firsthand, they've done it for many years, and then now they're extinct, these birds, or they're declining, or the whole ecological niche is decaying. What's going on? So I don't know. That, to me, is, is an ethical question. And um, there are other people who have published on this already. Um, I refer to it as bystanding and doing nothing, really. Um, and so have we been effective enough? Have we done all we can do to change the system? And I think it's obvious that we didn't. As a matter of fact, when you look at this concept of seabirds as indicators, I mean, any animal indicates the ecological niche. Okay, you can't live without the ecological niche or you're dead. Um, so this is not rocket science, really, right? I mean, this idea of seabird indicators really is, is not something peculiar, special, or that only seabirds have. There are many things that seabirds will tell you for sure, but um, do it in hindsight and afterwards is not effective and it's it's not like new. I mean, it's like repeating what everybody else knows. And I don't know why we have these review papers where people celebrate um, seabirds as indicators when nothing happens. This is like, a uh, I don't know, no progress to me. Now you will say, wait a minute, we're doing this tagging and biologging and there's a revolution in biologging. Now everything's get better. Well, number one, I don't believe that. Secondly, I believe um, putting tags on, on these animals is um, some sort of human dominance and the agency dominance and just showing um, that we really don't do much about it. Uh, you can actually look at it in a, in a very real, realistic way. So let's go through some facts here. Um, these tagging studies are not coordinated. They're usually not well coordinated. Okay. Um, 
they are actually very competitive to each other and these people don't share data in most cases okay the open access data sharing free of logins free of passwords just for everybody use the data have a look at it and um, for best possible decisions isn't very rarely happening so therefore this this tagging and biologging is certainly not effective it's basically a power grab if you can put a transmitter on a uh, whatever big albatross or on a penguin then you think you are, have done great science whereas the opposite is the case it's like a game it's like a prestigious prestige game and i'm just not impressed about it in the meantime if you really believe in indicators you should also uh, put tags on the prey of these seabirds which never happens almost not possible when you think of albatross eating squid i mean tagging squid is not simple no, nor is it meaningful when you have billions of squid floating in the ocean you only take 10. i mean the whole sample size issues is, is another one that creates a massive bias so back to research design there visually is none it's entirely <laughs> opportunistic that's really not um uh good science and it's an issue of dominating the animal so just to bring it home where does it leave us um this is not good news seabirds are one of the most uh as a group of, of the one of the the groups that are most concerned with conservation they are heavily in trouble many of them of them are on a declining trend and this happened just in the last 60 years really which again makes it easy to pinpoint who was in charge in the last 60 years who drove globalization and just to bring it home in a very simple way, I mean, there's some with it, something wrong with industrialized society. It's not sustainable. It's certainly not good for most seabirds. Um, economic growth, the one-sided promotion of economic growth will put seabirds into trouble and the ocean into trouble. And with that, we are left with a Western so uh, society. So then back to the question, what is a seabird indicator um, the title of the podcast was bystanding by design seabirds as, as an indicator of a failed scientific conservation management and the institution employees and ngos worldwide so i'd like to show you an example on this uh, at the end um, there have been books published on seabirds there's a very very classic one one of many um, let's say the one from Tony Gaston in Canada uh, with the Canadian Wildlife Service and Environment Canada at that time. Um, when you actually look at that book, there are some many interesting stories in there, but um, one thing that's missing is conservation, right? I mean, there are many, many pages about seabirds, an entire life of studying seabirds and the summary written in an entertaining way, uh, science-based, but then there's one page in conservation of even that. And to me, that's a typical example how somebody in public office is not tackling conservation. Perhaps there is conservation happening in the last 30, 40 years, but um, it's certainly not reflected in the book because it wasn't probably seen as, as relevant. When you move into the NGOs, um, which have acted for the last 40 years, if not even longer, usually the NGO started after the Second World War. It was a legal entity created, not for profit, with the idea that they can use and fundraise money and then work on, on these funders or on their own money, whatever they have, and, and get some things done on the environmental front or elsewhere. And um, what has happened? I mean, what has really happened uh, with this interesting concept of seabirds as indicators, animals as indicators reflecting what's going on in the ocean, 
in the world, in the nowadays Anthropocene. And in the meantime, we're really facing many, many problems that, in my view, could have been addressed earlier, could have been avoided or could have been tackled or could have been communicated much better. And I'm I'm lacking this type of awareness and um, this type of action. And I'm really concerned and scared for the future generation. Um, you don't need to create these horror scenarios, but um, many of the horror scenarios become reality scenarios. So that's these are very fair questions, I think, um, that I'm raising here. I have raised them for a long time. I rarely get any feedback on those or any valid uh, um, acknowledgements even, or certainly no valid visions or actions that we how really to tackle that in a good and friendly way. So that's my point here. Um, I think these questions are fair. They deserve answers. And here we are. Um, I'm happy to hear your opinions on this. You can um, communicate with me and um, discuss these issues with me anytime, please. And I leave it there. Hope you have a good day. Bye-bye.